Got it. <laughs> hey, everybody. Larry Powell here. Welcome to Studio HFL. And we are live tonight with Chris Coletti. You can see Chris on the other side of the screen there. Hi. Hey, um, you know, of course, this interview, as well as all of the previous interviews in June and May, brought to you by the generosity of Trent Austin and Austin Custom Brass. Of course, you can find out more about that at austincustombrass.biz.biz. And uh, I tell you what, it's been great. Uh, Chris, you are you are the final piece in what has been a spectacular lineup, even going all the way back to uh, January when I first started doing the live. I mean, look at look at who was here during June. Rachel, Jen, uh, Sarah, uh, this this kind of hack, uh, you know, James Morrison <laughs> last week. Oh, my gosh, what a great interview. And, of course, you're rounding things out here tonight. And I, I just couldn't be happier with uh, the lineup. And um, so I also want to say thank you for everybody joining. And don't forget that uh, you can go to studiohfl.com and sign up for the newsletter there. Of course, you can go to the Studio HFL Facebook page and the Studio HFL YouTube channel. And of course, all these interviews are gonna be available on the audio and video platform following uh, the interview this evening. So uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I, I was gonna post some information about July's interviews, but um, those are gonna be postponed until August. I'm uh, going to take a break. So anybody looking forward to uh, Yari Villanueva. Um, let's see who else. There was uh, Tony DeLorenzo. I got some good people coming up. Uh, awesome. Some, some great players. But uh, so let's get to it. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And for those and of you that are wondering what that background sound is, it's not an app. It's an actual thunderstorm. Or you already can't hear it and forget I ever said it. Uh, I, I can still hear it, but you know it. Uh, it's refreshing. It it actually is very relaxing. Good. Yeah. Feel it. Now, if if lightning strikes, uh, I I hope you're not still sitting there. I mean, you need to disappear. <laughs> I'm not out of there. Fast as lightning, but I will try. <laughs> yeah. So, um, funny thing is, uh, when Chris first joined me this evening, I I thought he was somewhere down in the mountains of Tennessee, but uh, I was off. <laughs> I was off by a, a, a few miles. Uh, Chris, you're joining us tonight from Ithaca, New York, right? The mountains of Ithaca. Mountains of Ithaca. Yeah. So uh, I've never been to Ithaca. Are there mountains up there? There are mountains up here. Yeah, it's very mountainous. And uh, I mean, I guess you'd call it hills compared to the, anyone out there in the West at, or like Switzerland listening in. But it's very mountainous. And um, it has a pretty amazing history, actually. Those of you that are into fossils, by the way, I am. I, my wedding ring is actually, I mean, the, the, the metal is platinum, but the, the, this brown part, those of you that can't uh, see it, it's, a, it's actually an inlaid dinosaur fossil. They didn't tell me what the dinosaur was, but my wife got me this. I'm very exciting. So relating this back to Ithaca, glaciers uh, ran over the area and unfortunately eroded the history that would have included any dinosaur fossils. But there are still um, mastodon bones to be found. And we have, there still are fossils everywhere, but they're really old fossils. So every, pretty much every day, my sons and I go out and we find fossils from like 460 million years ago. They're just shells. It's not as thrilling as a dinosaur bone, but 460 million years ago, we're not finding that on Mars. Well, maybe. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Uh, so if you don't mind, uh, how old are your boys? 
Uh, one's turning four and one's turning two. How are you still awake at this time of day? I mean, how do, I mean, well, do that's you? That's partially why I'm outside. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to go to sleep, and my wife yeah. is being gracious and doing that for us. So. Oh, oh. Um, that's cool. So I'm trying to think if that's close to the Appalachian uh, Mountains at all, but uh, I'm going to have to do some geography uh, searching on my own here after after we're done. But yeah. uh, is, New York. is New York home for you? Well, I'm a New York City person my whole life. This is the first time I've lived uh, anywhere else. I've lived, you know, short term at kind of a lot of different places, but I've always been a New York City guy. And I moved here because I teach at Ithaca College. So it's been three years. As applied trumpet instructor or a professor, what, yep. what's the... Yeah. yeah, the technical term is assistant professor of trumpet. And for those of you outside of academia, assistant doesn't mean I'm someone's assistant. <laughs> It means, I was very offended at first, mm -hmm. I'm only kidding, but it, it means that you're um, on the tenure track and then if you get to tenure, you, you become associate. And anyway, and those of that, those that know this, this is boring stuff, but yeah. Uh, so it is a tenure track position and you're yeah. three years in, is that right? Technically two, because the first was a first, well, it was a one year. So I'm only oh, two okay. years in. Yeah, it's a okay. long, it's not like orchestras folks. You get, <laughs> it's like a five to six year process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell you, you know, I shared a, an office or a studio with somebody who was going through the tenure process, and mm -hmm. I saw these binders and exactly. boxes. It's like you have to document everything. Okay. This is going in there. So if you have any uh, fan mail come in, I'll use that. Oh, wow. I get to be part of somebody's. Yeah, you know, here's the funny thing. Like, who actually looks at every single item in the portfolio, <laughs> right? I mean, I actually had someone tell me. I didn't look at it. There's too much stuff. I was like, too much stuff. I struggled to like compile all this thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some people do though. And the, the point is that you have to go up against, um, not up against, but you have to, to make <laughs> your case for why you're worthy of being hired, you know, pretty much permanently right? Uh, with raise and all to people that know nothing about music. So they, I might be doing really cool things to a trumpet player or to a musician, but to them it's, I have to explain them like, well, yeah, this concert is pretty cool. This one is actually a huge deal. They look equal, you know, on paper, but they're not that type of thing. So, yeah, but you played trumpet on both. I mean, that's the same, right? It's yeah. Like it looks like you played <laughs> trumpet your whole life. Don't you do anything else? <laughs> right. So is, this is not your first uh, college teaching gig. It's my first tenure track position, but yeah, I taught at Brooklyn college for years and I've had an online studio actually before it was even cool to do it. I got a lot of criticism for it, but I actually have a lot of um, students that have now gone on to, you know, do other things. And it's been really a really uh, incredible thing. I felt very fortunate, of course, when we were forced to go online. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it didn't feel strange at all. But yes, but this is not my first, but it's my first tenure track position. Uh, how'd you get into the college uh, teaching route? Was it something you had planned or, uh oh, I'm teaching college? You know, here's that opportunity. <laughs> I better be ready. Let's go. So the, the it, it actually, this is kind of a funny story. I mean, I, I think teaching is a natural um, thing to enjoy as you get better and better at, at anything. Um, but it wasn't something as a kid that I wanted to do. Actually, I actively avoided, <laughs> avoided it in some ways. I just wanted to perform. But when I was um, in living in Brooklyn, I had just read a book, very popular book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Robert Kiyosaki. Is that, am I saying that right? And um, it kind of got, it gets you to think like an, uh, an investor, like how do you use your current 
assets, your skills, your money, whatever it is that you might have currently, not, not nothing new to make a different, like make more money or make yourself, make progress. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing that, you know, we had an, I was with Canadian Brass. We had an instrument sponsor. I had, I had horns, but I, I had the horns that I had already owned. I had like all these nice trumpets, piccolos, cornets, all sorts of stuff that I had purchased as a student. And so I decided to call some local schools to see if they'd be interested in renting them. I thought that'd be kind of nice and make it cheap, you know, something that'd be helpful. And they were actually like, I called Brooklyn College. I lived a mile away from them at the time. And my parents both went there. My roommate had gone there. It was kind of a cool connection. And they were like, yeah, uh, actually, that's super, super helpful. We don't have enough cornets for this concert coming up. And um, a week later, they were like, our trumpet professor just retired. You interested? And I was like, ah, that's going against the rules of the book. But um, sure. And, And I absolutely fell in love with it. So that's how I came to teaching. How old were you at that point? Oh, that's a good question. I was probably 27. Yeah, I'd been doing Canadian Brass a couple of years. And... I'm trying to do the math. I mean, you look 29. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe 31. Maybe I should change the lighting. Um, yeah, I don't know. The lights from below. I know I'm 36. <clears throat> wow, you're, you're still a pup. You're still a kid. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I am. I, was, I, I joined Canadian Brass when I was 25. I was really young, and um, although Brandon Ridenauer is still the youngest person to have joined, he was 24. No. Although, wow. hopefully, no, I think he was yeah. younger because he was touring. This is actually how I came to become a member of Canadian Brass. I was a student at Juilliard. I was a master's student at Juilliard, and he was an undergrad student at Juilliard. And he oh was my gosh. almost never there because he was touring already. But that was during the Dream Team days, but he was still a member. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember how old he was back then. My gosh. Oh, my gosh. I, for, I forgot about that, the the dream team. Uh, there was a, a heck of a rotation that went through. Um, and, you know, of course, yeah. you think, well, yeah, nobody can replace Ronnie Rom. Nobody yeah. can replace Fred Mills. Nobody oh, can, yeah. right? I mean, uh, anybody can replace Jens. That's not a problem, right? <laughs> it's just, yeah. Um, well, you just, ha- you just have to have a giant ego, right? Oh and and I'm not gonna get in trouble for that. Am I? Am I? I'm speaking the truth. I think, but <laughs> um, but seriously, back to the dream team. Who uh, remind me? There was a there was a lady, young lady from France. Yeah, or, Manon, no, uh, La- from from Canada. Sorry. Yeah, her name was Lafrance. Yeah, Manon was her name, mm-hmm. and she's actually I'm gonna screw this up, but she's like the president of the conservatoire in Montreal or some. She's basically the she's amazing. She's the boss, mm-hmm. and. Yep. Okay. So uh, now I'm thinking, what's that like? What if you, do you have to know all the first parts, all the second parts? Do you, can, do you have to play piccolo? And what if somebody comes on that, you know, I mean, how did you guys figure that out? Well, I, when I joined, we, the dream team ceased to um, operate like that. It was just mm-hmm. me and Brandon Reinauer. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, so we, it wasn't like having to learn both books. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting dark. Should I change? Should I open, turn on some lights? Uh, you can if you want to. I mean, you, you still look well, still look okay, uh, well right. lit. Yeah, yeah. Oops. Um, it was what weird happened? when when um, whenever we would have you know somebody have to miss a concert though, and the person that would come in and sub was the person that knew the book that I knew, and then it was like, well, who's going to learn the new book? The guy that already memorized it all, the guy that already had memorized it ten years ago. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but but really that didn't happen very much. We almost yeah. we all played every single show. Um, how many years were you with him? 10 years. 10. 
That's okay. And so we, we were, you were making light of this before we started. You said you had retired from Canadian <laughs> yeah, brass. I did. Um, but 10 years, that's still a pretty good amount of time to spend with a group, especially one that tours as often as they do. Yeah, it was, oh my gosh, it was a thrill. When I was 25 and I joined, it was just, I mean, I had nothing else to compare with being as cool as that. I mean, it was beyond my wildest dreams. I just wanted to be a principal trumpet in an orchestra somewhere, and that was what I was sort of pursuing. I was doing other projects, but uh, I had a love for chamber music. Of course, I was been, I'd been a fan of the group for my whole life. And so I just... I, I was pinching myself all 10 years, to be honest. And I think it was exciting to talk to the other members other than the founders, although they felt that way too. We were all kind of yeah. always all pinching ourselves. I mean, imagine if like, and this has nothing to do with me. I, I joined after they had already figured it out. Although there was a lot to, we were still hopefully contributing something, but it'd be like if a bassoon duo just like took off, became the, the, the most important like chamber group to be had, like on the Tonight Show playing with, you know, it's like, it's a bassoon duet. What, what's going on here? And, that, and that's how the guys in the group, the original guys were like, this is crazy. How did this happen? But that was also, it was like their destiny in a way. They, they put in so much work. It was, they were like literally almost born to do it. And and this is not to, to, to say they didn't work their butts off. If actually it was the opposite. They were just so dedicated to making a full-time performing career playing in that group. That it came first, and it they, it paid off. I, I was fortunate enough to get to hear uh, Ronnie, Fred, uh, uh, well, Chuck, Gene, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to think who was playing horn. David, I think, was was David, in the group nice. at the time, and then uh, with Jens, right? I think that was kind of the that wasn't that the first time where, in in many years, they had somebody new. Yeah. Um, but the quality of the group was still there, and yeah. and I've heard I've heard uh, the group since then. But it's still the same entertainment. It's there's still an expectation that it's going to be a great show, and it is. There's still an expectation that you know you're going to hear Amazing Grace and Tiger Rag, you know, and and some new. And this is the cool part, right? Now are a lot of really cool new stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's still Canadian brass. It still has that prestige that, so I don't think you guys, uh, even post Chris Coletti, right? They're, they haven't missed it, the step. They haven't missed a step in this. It's been, it's been unique. And I wonder if and when Chuck leaves, yeah, it, what that vibe is going to be like or what that feels yeah. going to be. Yeah, that's, so. a, I mean, it's sort of a, I'm going to screw this up, but like, it's a big, in a way, it's a philosophical question. It's like the ship that, you know, you want to preserve it because it was the ship that won the battle that made everyone's lives what it is now. And then you replace one plank as, at a time as it gets old and old. And eventually you've replaced every, every plank. Is it still the same ship? Right. And then to take it a step further, what do you, what happens if you put together all the rotten pieces on the side is which is then then which is the real one but, but, you're, but you're right I, I it's become a um a brand that you know it's like i don't know of, of a better word where yeah you do expect a certain quality a certain level of fun um and you might expect a certain personnel at a certain time but amazingly and I, and I think chuck's leadership is just absolutely crucial to this um there's been 
a thread that ties the, the history together despite the changes. And it's it really is an astounding thing. I mean, I just feel so, you know, fortunate to have been part of that. Um, actually, we just, I was so excited because of course, after you retire, those of you that have already retired, like actually retired maybe would relate even more, but they uh, published um, a recording of Damigella Tutabella by, by Monteverdi, which Caleb arranged and that I'm on, but they didn't, they only put it out uh, this year. And it's just such an incredible arrangement that he put together that became one of our, one of our favorite openers for a long time. And so things like that happen and it kind of ties in between the you know, old and new groups and what have you. I, I just recalled one of my first introductions to you in that group was uh, Bad Romance. <laughs> yes. And first of all, I mean, it was like this left turn, right? <laughs> because there was electronics, there right. was singing or vocalization. Uh, and then you went up to like a double high C, uh, you know, uh, well, it was, it was a high C or, or something about, it was, what a, what a, what a great and entertaining video that was. And uh, I think it took me a while to figure out you guys wove uh, something by Coldplay into the front end of that. Uh, La Vida Loca, wasn't it something like? Yeah, Viva La Vida has a little Viva La Vida, there. that's that's we, what it was. Which we also recorded in a similar session, but um, yeah, anyway, I digress. Yeah, uh, well, thanks for checking that out, that was me. So, okay, so do you sing on other projects as well? Um, I don't, and um, it was actually funny how that came to be. I mean, I was a kid when I, again, when I joined Canadian Brass, and I was doing, like, silly things at bars to get attention and, you know, silly things like that. And at music festivals is sort of where I realized that my ability to do that, sing really high with an operatic style, was kind of unusual, and that people mm -hmm. thought it was kind of entertaining. And when I joined the group, you know, after, you know, it was sort of like, it seemed like I was going to be doing some tours and to try as a trial. And it was like, I had already done that for the guys. It was sort of like trying to get to know the person. Right. But it was made pretty clear. I shouldn't be doing that on stage. <laughs> um, fast forward, maybe two years. I was doing the, if those of you that have heard the, the group's holiday concert, there's an arrangement Ronnie Rom did of Dreidel. And it's, it's really funny because it starts out just like, an unaccompanied statement of the steam theme by the different instruments. And then it becomes sort of like the smooth jazz thing. And then it becomes like this, like kind of fired up, like more modern jazz thing. Then it kind of just goes through all these different styles. just like one after the other one. After the other. And it ends with this klezmer thing. That's really upbeat. And there's a big klezmer, like sounds like a clarinet, but piccolo trumpet cadenza. And I, and I was playing this and on tour, the guys, you know, we were always giving each other a lot of comments. And I was, of course, the new guy getting the most comments. It was like, yeah, it's great, but it doesn't sound like the condenser doesn't quite sound like Chris Coletti yet, you know? And of course, I was like, oh, man, I really feel like it. I don't know what else to do. I'm putting everything I can in there. And I decided on, on a total whim to just instead of playing the peak of the phrase, you know, where the group came back in, the high C, I just sang it. And the audience just went, what the... And they used to, they went crazy laughing and clapping. It was like kind of this amazing thing. And I was like, and after they were like, it's in the show. And from that point on, it was Chuck used to joke. He's like, it's not a Canadian brass show. If Chris doesn't sing the high C and I don't wind up on the ground. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it really became a thing. It got yeah, when I had like a cold. Or <laughs> yeah. And you know, if, can you imagine being the guy that succeeded you? It's like, wait a minute, I have to do what? 
I mean, I have to yeah. do what? Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I shouldn't, I should say that there was some experimentation that led to getting it just right. You know, mm -hmm. we realized that like doing it three times in the show, it became like, all right, we get it. The guy can sing high. Mm -hmm. um, once it was like, sometimes people would forget it twice seemed to do just right. Mm -hmm. um, there were some embarrassing moments in the experimentation stage, which maybe I should, or maybe I shouldn't say. Uh, but who noticed? Right. I mean, was it apparent to yeah. you or did the, did the, would the audience ever know? Right. It was probably more like they looked at each other like, what the heck was that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. That but you know, there's, that. there lies, therein lies the beauty of live performance, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how many recordings were you able to be part of while you were there? Oh gosh. So at least nine full CDs. And then there were a wow. bunch of singles and we did tons of, I didn't count the music videos, but tons, um, dozens maybe. And we did so many things that were live, just recorded live and put on TV or put on, um, you know, internet TV or both. So yeah, it was, it's just been, yeah, it's such a thrill. I'll never forget. Okay. So you're there 10 years. At mm -hmm. what point are you thinking I'm going to go a different direction? <laughs> I don't think I ever really thought that. What, what really happened is I was, I started doing the, the, the one-year position at Ithaca where I wound up. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of worked out perfectly. Canadian Brass actually have, had a concert booked years in advance, like two years in advance at the concert. So that I'm sure that helped, you know, that I not only had to do a recital and all that other, you know, it's a very long, you know, multi-day process to mm -hmm. take the audition for a teaching position, but it certainly helped that, you know, within, you know, a month of that, we had a concert there that was recorded and whatnot. But um, I had a son, my, uh, during my Canadian brass touring years who turned about one when I started doing the one-year position at Ithaca. And then I, my wife got pregnant again only 20 months after that, after my first one was born, while uh, I found out that I was getting the full-time, like, tenure-track position. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was during a Christmas tour where we're the, the Canadian Brass is by far our busiest time to tour. Mm -hmm. we, we made a concert every single night between Thanksgiving and like the day or two before Christmas, something like that, with wow. three days off where we had nothing, nothing to do other than not even to travel, just like literally night off. And I had not just me, any of the guys that had teaching positions had to fly home and teach. The ones that had tenure didn't have to do this, but those that are trying to get tenure went home and had to teach all of our students' lessons. So I had 15 students and I, I mean, I literally came home on a 5.30 a.m. flight, got into Ithaca, went right to the school, didn't even take a shower or go home, see my family or anything like that. Taught all the lessons till the night and then went home. My son was already asleep, you know, went to sleep. And then on a 5.30 a.m. flight, right back at concert that night, you know, it was just crazy. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, it was Christmas time. And I was like, this is, this is insane. And that was before my second son was born. So mm -hmm. it became kind of obvious that it wasn't going to work to do all that. And, um, and the teaching position was, was something, again, I didn't really imagine until I started applying. And I liked it so much. And I liked the town. I loved living here. And it just, it just sort of like was the perfect timing. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And then it really felt like good timing to not be touring full time. So, but that was the decision. It was almost exactly that month. Yeah, I, I know there are going to be people that like, 
man, if you get a chance to get that kind of gig, it's you never let it go, right? Yeah. But you know, until you're in that position where it's like you've you've got away family, or or other, let's let's think about it for real. Long term employment opportunities. I mean, yeah, can, exactly. Canadian Brass might be, you know, you could have maybe been there twenty years, but you could be teaching for thirty or forty more years, right? Yeah. So I, I I get it. Um, it, it I, I look at the the amount of people that have rotated through that group. And wonder, you know, what it'd be interesting to, to get all you guys together and find out the decisions that you had to make, you know, mm-hmm. why you had to make them to leave the group. But, um, yeah, and just an aside, it's been great. I've been able to talk to Ronnie, uh, Gene, I haven't been able to talk to Chuck yet, um, uh, Brandon, Caleb. You know, it's it's been cool to talk about that. Oh, and I've got to ask: Were you any? Were you doing any of the meditation? Was any of that still going on uh, pre-show while you were there? Yeah. So that was that was. Um, I had already been meditating, so that was sort of a cool. I don't know if that was considered on my audition, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, Gene was my teacher for TM, and that was great. I mean, I, I thought it was like to me, it was life changing. Meditation in general, but. Um, and the fact that the group considered it something that was important was a big deal because it's hard to find time to do anything, you know, right. on tour. And so they, they prioritized coffee, really good coffee. We, we, it became like an obsession. It was almost like we were touring just to get to the greatest coffee shops in the world. Um, and, and there was just time dedicated for that. That kind of changed in the last couple of years, but um, it was to, as somebody that liked it and found it really important to me. That was great. That's something that's hard being home, where I'm teaching at home, I'm working at home, I'm not touring almost at all. I mean, nobody really is yet, but maybe some people. But and uh, that's the kind of thing where I lo- I lo- I'm a big Derek Sivers fan, and, and he calls it your multiplier. Like it's a, mm-hmm. if it's if it's something that you give it time, but it actually gives you more efficiency, more effectiveness. Mm-hmm. It gives you more than the time you gave it back. Then prioritize those things. You know, right. like maybe that's working out. Um, but how easy is it to say, well, yeah, 30 minutes, I'd rather just get that extra minute, 30 minutes of sleep. It's like, oh, you're probably better off working out, you know, it's right. depending on where you are in your life. So, yeah, I, I was part of that. And I think that it was a big part of the group's success early on. I know Gene and Chuck feel that way. Well, and to know that they were all, all five of them were in on that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, and you look at, I mean, when you talk to them, they they have such affection for each other. Yeah. I mean, that that could have been the thing that evened everything out. Absolutely, I think that I think so. And for those, um, that, I mean, nowadays I think a lot of people have probably at least either meditate or do or dabbled with it. Um, and of course, in the '60s and '70s, that was when it was first brought to the West and kind of became popularized. Um, but it had a, it had a, um, a flavor to it that probably turned people that would may have otherwise not been turned off to it because the whole hippie thing and it became. A little one-sided now it seems you know science is saying to do it they have it in hospitals and so it's really just for those that don't haven't te- meditated by the way i'm not trying to sell anybody on this it's just a technique to chill out basically and you could of yeah. course do anything else with it but well and tm a tm but transcendental meditation is the mm-hmm. what that stands for um uh mindfulness right that's kind of a, one of the catchwords or catchphrases or these days, right? You know, people talk about mindfulness. 
I think that has a lot to do with that as well as just being uh, calm and open. Um, anyways, uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, th this is not my area of expertise. Actually, <laughs> Nor I, is it I, mine, but I, I have been putting a, an, an, a, the biggest chunk of my time towards it now than ever, because I think with the pandemic and everybody's freaking out, I would have died if I didn't have that skill or at least know that that was a tool that would help because yeah. I'm seeing other people that don't know that it's a tool that will help and it's a skill like anything else like running you know you don't want to start running when you see the bear chasing you right <laughs> the people that have been running their whole lives that's when they're like okay I'm gonna run I love this story of actually it's not a story it's a video that you should all google it's hilarious of a guy <laughs> who's a world champion um, speed walker and they, it was some silly reality show. They wanted to know what would happen if he was attacked. Like if he thought his, he was going to be killed or something, would yeah. he run or speed walk away? And, and the way they decided to try, try it out was he was like warming up on a track before a race, a speed walking race. And they had three guys dressed like ninjas with swords and everything. Just suddenly oh jump out over the, and start chasing <laughs> with swords. It's like such a bizarre thing. And he, oh, he totally ran by the way. He did not speed. Oh, of course. Walk. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's where it was like, uh-oh, I need help. Okay, thank gosh I know how to meditate. I'm going to start doing that again now and it, and start diving into it deep. Yeah. We're, we're going to go, we're going to take a left turn. Uh, turn. Coffee. Uh, do you remember the movie Elf? <laughs> I do, but I, don't, I haven't seen it, but I remember it. Okay. Well, there's a scene where uh, he's in New York City. And he pops into one of these diners and it says world's best cup of coffee. And he just pops <laughs> in and says, congratulations, you know, world's best <laughs> cup of coffee. Um, so my question then is where yeah. on your, on your trips, uh, where is the best cup of coffee? Ooh. Cause you said it was coffee and meditation, right? You, you said there were things. <laughs> right. 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 I think, um, <clears throat> well, I should say that the, the culture, of really good coffee where like the barista that's, you know, made a career out of making coffee for some reason and like, and thank you to those people, you know, $30,000 espresso machines, the bean, you know, it was like massaged to get exactly <laughs> the right temperature. You know, it's like that right. kind of obsessive, like snootiness, which I love, um, has sort of become a global phenomenon, which is sort of fascinating. So, but I first found it in Brooklyn, but of course it was first probably uh, more on the West Coast where mm. places like Portland is like amazing coffee town. Um, but what I've been told, and I'm not an expert at the history of course, is that the style that those of those that are into like espresso type drinks, like macchiatos and cappuccinos and Cortados and what have you, actually that style where the foam is flat and and basically um, not like a fluffy layer on top of the coffee, but actually integrated into the coffee itself is an Australian invention. Where And that's a place I haven't been. Uh, hey, that's a great segue for the comment from John Foster. From John Foster? I just yeah. said that's awesome. Uh, great to hear, Chris. <laughs> I've rarely met or heard such an instantly impressive person and player. Wow. Oh, I feel like that about John Foster. Thank you, That's John. high praise from one of the greats. It's going in my yeah. portfolio. I'm going to yeah. take a screenshot right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, John, man, what a what a great guy! And the first time yes. I heard him play, uh, it was live. I, I hadn't really known anything about him. He and Vince DiMartino were here uh, in Indianapolis doing their trumpet show. Sound the trumpet, I think, is the name of the show. Yes. And I heard John warming up on natural trumpet, and I was like, it was a truly jaw dropping moment. It's like it's amazing. That's what that's supposed to sound like. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. come out of the box like that. That's for sure. No, no. So uh, John was was on here last week too. So John, good to good to hear and see you again. Um, yeah. So you mentioned massaging the coffee bean. Is it is it Wagyu beef where they they massage the the cow, right? So that's the, one of them. Yeah. Wa, or what? So we're going to have to have a Wagyu coffee. Exactly. Right. right. Where they only listen to or, classical music. And there's apparently a brand of milk. <laughs> and this could be a total scam. I could be. And I was fooled by it. But I lo- I wouldn't be surprised if it's real. But there's apparently a, a, a company that, that has their cows lined up so that they're separated enough that each cow or each section of cows is only played a certain composer. And so the more I say this out loud, the more I'm like, maybe this was my idea. <laughs> and you're supposed to be able to taste the difference with the milk. This is the Mozart milk. This is the Bach milk. You know. I, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Well, guess who's going to Google that after this interview? <laughs> if it turns out that nobody's done that yet, just that's, cut that part out of it. Great idea. idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> you know, what if, what if they listen to John Cage? Right? What's, what's well, that going to be like? Yeah. So, I love John Cage, but I'm not sure I would like the milk. You know, it's funny. Uh, people mention John Cage, like me, and the only piece I can name is four minutes and thirty seconds, or whatever. That, yeah, it's like thirty-three. Yeah, four well, thirty-three. It's a very, it's okay. It's there's a, it's a very memorable name, and well, it's cl- almost a really memorable name, and a lot of the other pieces have weird names that are not, they're descript- descriptive. Yeah. But if what I would recommend anyone that has only heard of that piece that's listening to this right now, there's some. Um, live appearances he did on big talk shows. I don't even know what they are. They're not too hard to find Mm -hmm. where he's performing his piece, you know, for like rubber duck toilet seat and a bunch of random household items. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think learning about it in conservatory, you feel like this guy's a total jerk, you know, like he's, why are we studying this? Like he's he's obviously like giving the middle finger to the, the normal way of things. And he doesn't like it. But when you watch him perform it, it's, First of all, he's totally dedicated to making the performance go exactly the way he wants. On the other hand, it's not serious, but he's not a joke either. He's he's not making fun of it. Mm-hmm. He's actually just like, okay, and he's like runs, he does the duck, and then and it's it's actually amazing. You're like, wow, he really is a genius. <laughs> it's a creative and people in the audience, some are laughing and some are like, hmm. You know, it really it is a there's a, there's a depth to it. So uh, this is going to take us back to Canadian brass. You know, it's one thing to be able to play and fit into that ensemble. But what about the stage presence? I mean, was that something? Is that yes. the moment that's supposed to go inside? Yes, Lord. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you just got bleeped by nature. I did. I guess I'm not supposed I'll, to ask I'll, that question. I'll head inside. It's getting pitch black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, the way you're doing it right now, it's like, uh, what was that movie about the kids, uh, you know, it, it Lost in the Woods? That's right. Blair, the Blair Witch Project, Blair right? Witch. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and ask that question again, you know, about playing with Canadian brass, but what about the stage presence? 
you know, was that something that came naturally to you? Um, I think it was definitely something that we rehearsed um, and we would comment on each other and watch videos and get, you know, we would seek feedback from experts. You know, we hired a dancer at one point as a consultant and, and a lot of this work was done before I joined the group, like the original members, which maybe they talked about when you interviewed them, but um, we never stopped trying to perfect that aspect of it. And little things would go a long way. And actually, I, I stopped thinking about some of the little things because they became so natural to us. So in a sense, it was, I think what was natural is that I always had that desire to like do that, but what to actually do, I think took a lot of tweaking because some people overdo it and it's so annoying, you know? And that's most of the time, you know, you, you think you're you know, overdoing a, smi a smile or bow or whatever. And actually you're just like, you look totally stiff. <laughs> and so it takes, you know, like anything, it takes a lot of work to get to the point where it actually looks and feels natural. But um, yeah. Um, uh, hang on a second. I'm, I'm trying to think about uh, the follow up to that. Um, oh, I, I know what I was going to ask. Sorry. Um, yeah. So you're not done with the chamber music side of things, right? And you and we'll talk about, you know, you're playing in orchestras. Yeah. Um, you know, you really get the best of both worlds, right? Sitting in the back row playing whatever symphony. And then with Canadian Brass standing at the edge of the stage where people yeah. know you and you can make direct eye contact with them. Um what is feeding that side of you since you're no longer with Canadian Brass? Well, what I, I've sort of accepted that I might not ever have unless I played with them again is, um, is that connection with an audience where they, they know you, they're expecting you. And that was, I think, one of the things that sort of astounded me. I did a lot of that when I was in the group. One of the things that fascinated me was this question of like, you know, I just always had a love for um, like psychology and that of course overlaps with marketing. And I wound up reading a lot about and studying that a lot during my Canadian grass years and before. And so the question of like, well, who's your audience? Who's your customer type thing? I just never could crack the code because it wasn't kids. It wasn't only, you know, older retired folks. It wasn't only musicians. It wasn't only non-musicians. It was like ev literally everybody was there from all over the world, it was really, really wild. And the one thing that seemed consistent was no matter where we went in the world, there was something like the audience had like a certain buzz about them that was like, I was like, I felt like I know these people. And, and that doesn't feel like that. I've toured with groups that were, you know, just put together for that tour. And it's like, no, they're there to see the rep or they're there to see, you know, the concert in that venue, you know, but these were people they wanted to see Canadian Brass. And that was, yeah. that was an, uh, I don't think most musicians will, will experience that feeling. And it's amazing. So I don't have necessarily, I don't think I'll ever have that. I don't think most people would ever really have that. Classical musicians, I should say. Yeah. Um, Let's go back to the psychology for a second. What, what mm -hmm. intrigues you about psychology? Um, I, I, I guess... I'm just inherently curious about everything. And I'm, I'm curious about what makes us do stuff. You know, what, what makes us as, as a human race 
do things? Um, and these are unanswered questions, you know. I mean, there are theories that, you know, boil down to avoid pain, seek pleasure, you know, and that might very well be it, but it's not like that's the done deal. You know, there's other people that are equally smart and have studied this that'll say, well, it's to seek meaning or to, you know, maybe it's just to not die, you know. And that's interesting, you know. One of the things, this is a little bit of a bridge between our conversation about meditation and this, is that um, something I've found that in, in the, you know, people probably have heard of Sam Harris who has a waking up, it's a meditation app. And it's almost, he's sort of anti-organized religion, but the, the app is almost all Buddhist techniques and, and, and philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, I shouldn't say that, I haven't explored it all, but most of it. And one of the, the main tenets of that is the idea that our self, like if you really meditate on the, or you don't even have to meditate, just ask yourself a question, like who am I actually, who's the actual me? Am I still me when I was like three days old as now? Most of us say yes, but if you really think about it a lot, it's hard to decide to say what that me is. Mm -hmm. And so they say that the, the, the self is actually empty. There's no actual self. And that, that's like, maybe tell, stop me if I'm going off the deep end here, but like, that's the kind of thing I've been, I think is really useful as a performer because the fear of being a, on stage or that thrill it could be good, it could be bad, it could be mixed, is that ego me self, which in a way it might not even really be there. It might be an illusion, which is fascinating to me. That's deep, and you're not going off the deep end. You know, I think it's pretty cool that uh, uh, that you can have that kind of insight, right? I mean, it's. I, I think that definitely comes through in your playing, right? I mean, that's because that's. You can't think about that sort of thing and not have it be a part of, you know, what you do for a living. I mean, it's it's going to come through, and you know, maybe people aren't. Uh, what I'm getting at is, people aren't going to hear you and go, "Oh, he's a psychology." You know, he's he's into psychology, uh, but something's wrong with that guy. That's but, but you know, but they're going to hear somebody who, for whom music is a deeper thing. It's not just oh, I play trumpet. Right. It's oh well. Thank you. I mean, I I think if that's true, I I would be. I feel very lucky. But um, but I I see what you mean. I, I think that if you're being true to yourself when you make your music, whether you're writing or performing or whatever it is, arranging, it's it's hard for your true your your other um, obsessions not to to make it in. Oh, and maybe even another way to think about it is you can tell when somebody's being genuine. Mm on stage and when somebody's not, and I'm not talking about, I mean, you can still be genuine with a rehearsed performance, right? Yeah. You have scripted yeah. and if you stick to the script, but you can still be totally, uh, you know, you've, you've sold out on it, not sold out. Maybe that's the right. Um, well, you know, that's an interesting, I'm, I'm, I'd love to dive into that because if you look at TV shows that like, this is not something I really watch a lot, but there's a lot of reality shows that sort of are based on this idea. And what's fascinating is that the audience can totally tell somebody that's faking it. And like, they're not trained. I mean, maybe some of them are, but like for the most part, they're just regular people that have an interest in, you know, being in the audience on this show. So they must like singing or whatever the talent is. But like, 
the person that has that hesitation, the person that was like trying to be cool or it, you could, it doesn't matter how, if they're trained or not. Humans are just like instantly like that guy's, I hate that guy, you know, <laughs> eat them <laughs> apart. You know, on those shows, they just like murder right. them on stage. And and yet the, the people that are like maybe not necessarily as technically perfect, but like it it comes across as real. Mm-hmm. It's like anyone can feel that. And and actually, I became fascinated by this concept in the group because that was something that I I felt like I was like I feel like I really have it, but I don't feel like it's coming across. I didn't feel like mm-hmm. that was something that came across necessarily right away. There was and probably anyone that studies music would relate to this. But certain styles, I felt like that. But others, I felt like I don't know. I don't even know how to do this. You know. And then others, you know, while, while others felt totally easy. As, as maybe as a pop musician, mean, this is a generalization, maybe as a, as a pop musician where you're writing your own tunes and you're only performing, you only write the stuff that you, is your money and that's it, you know, and that's great. But when you're in an orchestra, if you're in a chamber group, you just got to do everything. You, know? you have to be able to sell it with the same convincingness. And so I started looking at musicians that had that to sort of sew a thread between, um, the different styles. And so like some people really stru- stuck out. I like to go for the weird ones, the ones that didn't necessarily have anything to do with what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Tiny Tim, have you ever seen Tiny Tim? Yeah. Before? Yeah. It's like he has that. Tiptoe through the tulips. Right. Yeah. It's like, what the hell is going on here? But like, it's like, wow, that guy's really, really into that, you know? And he, and he's not trying to be cool. He's not trying to show. And you hear him speak. It's not even the same person. He's like a scholar (laughs) on the American songbook, deep voice, you know, just super well-spoken. And then he sings and it's like super high. And he's, it's very feminine and very, it's very strange. It's like a weird, he's totally weird but amazing as a performer. It's so sincere and pure. Um, um, and there's a lot of players, musicians like that. But, and I, I would, you know, here's, here's a thing that I think that's actually a really easy way to dive into this. Like if you can find videos of artists that you like, where you can see their eyes, like look at what they do with their eyes. You could sort of like, like I'm putting quotes for those that are just listening to the audio. You can sort of see what they're thinking and for the musicians that are amazing, it's actually really helpful. It's inspiring. Like, like I love watching Louis Armstrong. It's like his eyes go up to the top. And like, he is just, it's again, it's like pure expression. And, and again, he's rehearsed, you know, he's not just, he wasn't born like that. He is a performer, but it doesn't, it's not fake. Wynton Marsalis has got that magic too. Um, so it, it's funny. I, I took a doctoral level psychology uh, some psychology and music course uh, years ago and actually got into a discussion. You know how when you're playing or thinking about something, you look off in the corner, or you like talk about looking up to the left. And my question for that professor was, are we looking into a part of our psyche, a part of our brain? You know, people think, what's he looking at? <laughs> right. But, it, you know, is there something with that, that we're actually, you know, Louis Armstrong's actually looking up at, you know, the creative side of his brain thinking, okay, what's coming out next? Or, or maybe it's, uh, he sees, <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it's either an existential question or they're just looking for the exit sign. <laughs> right. I mean, of course, neural linguistic programming, which has people that swear by it and others that feel like it's not as rigorous as it could, as it could be. There's certainly some insights to be learned from those that study that because that's, they've actually went as far as like saying, I mean, you've probably come across this, but like, this direction means they're thinking about this. Mm-hmm. This direction of their eye, they're thinking about this. And maybe that's not, maybe that's too, um, 
square to sort of like pigeonhole everybody, but it's fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. And it definitely changes the way you look and interact with people. I mean, people that study sales tend to study that stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you get into these kinds of discussions with your students? Um, yeah, some of them. And that's one of the things I love about study, uh, teaching at a liberal arts school with a strong music program is that they're all so interesting. Like I, as a, I mean, I loved going to a conservatory for undergrad and masters. I just loved it. That was where I needed to be. I would not have enjoyed liberal arts then. Now I think I'm like, why the hell did I go? You know? right. but, um, but they're just like fascinating people and they have very, very different interests from each other. And, and, and already kind of their own expertise in things and things that I know nothing about. And, oh, it's great. Yeah, I, I absolutely, that's definitely one of my favorite things about teaching here. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a bit of a left turn again away from that. Although I, I'd love to talk psychology. Oh, and before I forget, David Wolf, another person who's, who's joined here. David is a good friend of mine and uh, a student, former student. Um, on the topic of food and coffee, what is your favorite <laughs> flavor of cream at the Cornell Creamery? He knows something you, that I don't. <laughs> the ice cream place we tend to go to is Purity. Purity is one of two ice cream shops in Ithaca that both claim to be, uh, and I'm wondering if that's the one he's talking about, they both claim to be the inventor of the Sunday, the ice cream Sunday. And so it's one of the two, or they're both lying, I don't know. And so, okay. but Purity is the one that we go to the most, and I like Bulldog Crunch. Highly recommend it. Um, let's go. Right? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you. Wherever that is, I'll meet you there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't go to Tennessee. It's not there. I mean, yeah, it's not there. <laughs> Beautiful state. Um, hey, everybody. Hope you've been enjoying this interview. Unfortunately, if you are not a Patreon member, you're not going to get to see the full interview. If you would like to hear the remainder of this interview with Chris, there's about another 30, 35 minutes to go. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash Studio HFL, and for as little as $3 a month, you're going to get access to the full-length videos. So I encourage you to check that out. Thanks for watching. See you next time.